I would say that absolutely the manifesto was in response to political pressure because that's what revelation is. Revelation is response to pressures on our, in our own lives. You know, when we're receiving personal revelation, it's oftentimes in response to questions we have or pressures we're feeling. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Today, we're talking about chapter 39, In the Hands of God, and we're very excited to welcome back Scott Hales, who's the general editor and writer for Saints. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Scott, we love it when you come because you can tell us all the stuff that didn't make the final cut, and you have such (laughs) cool insights. We're just super excited to have you back with us. We'll start off today talking about Anthon Lund. For our listeners, just remind them who Anthon is and what's unique about him being an apostle versus all the other apostles at this time. So Anthon Lund was the first apostle called from Scandinavia. So he converted to the church as a young man in Denmark, I think in the late 1850s, uh, came over in the 1860s. I could have my dates wrong here, but he, you know, he came over in those early years of the work in Scandinavia. Came to Utah, grew up, got married here married the daughter of another Scandinavian immigrant and was a faithful leader in the church. And then he was called into the Quorum of the Twelve, the first Scandinavian, the first modern-day apostle whose native language was not English. And then another thing that set him apart was that he was also the only monogamist in the Quorum at this time. Uh, Everybody else uh, practiced plural marriage, and so that also set him apart. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book, which includes a statement that is made by the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, It's the first statement that Anthon Lund has been asked to sign and support as a new member of the Quorum of the Twelve. In clear language, they proclaimed that the Church abhorred violence and intended to exist in peace with the United States government, despite the hardships they had suffered under the nation's anti-polygamy laws. We claim no religious liberty that we are unwilling to accord to others, the statement affirmed. We desire to be in harmony with the government and people of the United States as an integral part of the nation. Yeah, so this statement was an incredibly important statement made by the First Presidency. If you recall, I think in the previous chapter of the book, we talk about how at this time, one thing that the United States government was doing was that it was making it increasingly more difficult for immigrant saints to gain citizenship. Or one of the reasons why that was was because that there was a sense that you could not be a member of the church and a loyal citizen of the United States. And that was for a variety of reasons. You know, the saints in the past have had a a very difficult relationship with the United States government. There was some bad blood there. The practice of plural marriage did not help things. Uh, And so there was this idea that that you just could not be a Latter-day Saint and a good American citizen. And so what the first presidency wanted to do was they wanted to disavow that belief and say that even though we disagree with the government, the government's policies on polygamy, we nevertheless respect and honor the government, and we strive to be loyal citizens. And so uh, this was, for Anthony Lund, the first time that he had a, a chance to speak unitedly with the, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. I think one of the themes for me that I've learned in Saints Volume 2 is this idea of religious liberty. And in today's world, we see the church speaking out in many different ways in favor of religious liberty. And it's just fascinating to me to trace this back to a time when our own church members, members of our faith, were being denied citizenship because of their faith. Mm -hmm. 
and it helps put into context, why are we as a church, why are we so interested in this principle? Well, we have a pretty long history of dealing mm. with this principle of religious liberty. Yeah, and I think that is one of the fascinating things about the Saints series is that oftentimes in the church today, we don't know why the church does what it does or why we as church members, why we do what we do. And I think one thing that this series is helping us understand is, is why we do these things, that there are historical reasons why we act the way we do or why we believe the way we do. And uh, I think, as you pointed out, I mean, you can see our struggle with the government in the 19th century, our, our struggle to understand where we fit in the United States as a church, how that continues to inform our actions today. So let's talk about another person from this chapter. We catch up with Jane Manning James. She's now 60 years old. She has been divorced twice. She has several children and some grandchildren that have died or who were not as devoted to the church as she was. And she is worried about the state of her family. So Scott, if you could just tell us a little bit more about Jane's situation and what are her options? Well, you know, readers will remember Jane from earlier in this volume and also from volume one. And at this stage in her life, she's, you know, older than 60 years old. She understands that she doesn't have much time left here on earth, although actually we find out that she lives a very long life. You know, there's still many, many years ahead of her, but she's beginning to worry about the, the state of her soul. And at this time, you know, church members, and this is still true today, what we do, you know, we're trying to establish eternal family units that we will enjoy and be a part of through the eternities. And we understand that to enter the celestial kingdom, we need to forge these eternal bonds. And she's looking at her family and she sees a fractured family. And she's wondering who will she be with in the next life? And what complicates this is the matter of her race. She is an African-American woman and as we all know, and as we've, I'm sure you've talked about in other episodes, because of her race, she is not able, she's not permitted to participate in the ordinances of the temples, these ordinances that seal us together. And so not only does she worry about who she'll be with, but she worries just how she's going to get there in the first place if she's cut off from these ordinances. So I thought it was interesting. She keeps writing to the prophets just to figure out, is there anything that I can do? Is there anything that can be done? And her stake president does issue her a recommend to be able to perform baptisms for the dead. Mm -hmm. And I love what he says to her when he gives her this recommend. He says, you must be content with this privilege, awaiting further instructions from the Lord to his servants. So I think he's giving her hope in the situation that he's in. He's just saying, you know, continue to do your best. And, you know, we're waiting on the Lord for further instructions to know what to do to move forward. And I just thought that was neat because she also says to a Relief Society, she said, I know this is the work of God. I have never seen a time when I have felt like backing out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if anybody felt like backing out, it was probably Jane Manning James. And yeah. so I just think what a great example of dedication and perseverance. Things that I think about when I think about Jane Manning is just her perseverance in her faith because, you know, of all people that we read about in Saints, she's the one who maybe has the most reasons to turn her back, to walk away. And she doesn't, she persists and she continues to ask. She continues to seek after these ordinances. She continues to long to make these covenants. Ultimately, I, I think she's trying to find her home, her eternal home. And it is great that we have these records of moments where she is given hope. So we see, for example, uh, her stake president offering some hope, her patriarchal blessings from Patriarch John Smith, again, giving her hope. And I like that you bring up the Relief Society minutes because that is actually something that as we were trying to tell the story, I went through the Relief Society minutes for her war, just looking for references to her. 
And what I found and what I think others have found doing similar work is that she was a very active participant in her Relief Society. There are moments, there are time spans when she, every, every entry in the minutes to these Relief Society meetings, you see Sister Jane James bore her testimony. And uh, it's always great when they include some of her words like we have here uh, and that, that great, great testimony. I'm grateful that you mentioned her patriarchal blessing because this was one of the sweetest parts of this chapter for me when it says, quoting from her patriarchal blessing, thou shalt complete thy mission and receive thine inheritance among the saints, it promised, and thy name shall be handed down to posterity in honorable remembrance. Mm -hmm. And I think that saints, among with other things, is a fulfillment of that promise to Jane. Mm -hmm. We are definitely honoring her. And I'm super grateful that at a later time, after Jane had passed, that her endowments and, and all of her temple work were done for her. It makes me sad that she couldn't have that in her lifetime, but I'm really, really happy that Jane is part of our story, that we can hold her name and to her posterity and for all of us as church members in honorable remembrance. I agree. And I think this is something we're seeing. We hear a lot about Jane Manning these days. She's becoming better known in the church. So Emily Grant is another one of our people we're following along here in uh, chapter 39. And she's not having a whole lot of fun no. out, out <laughs> no. in NASA. Can you tell us about what were called polygamy widows and what's happening out in this remote community where they're hiding out? So the context here is the government crackdown on plural marriage. The raid is what we call it. And as you know, there are many church members who are going underground to hide from federal marshals or federal officials who are trying to, to apprehend polygamists and bring them to justice, that sort of thing. And so many women voluntarily left their homes in order to protect their families, to keep their husbands out of prison. And Emily Grant was one of them. She was the third wife of Apostle Heber J. Grant. And she went to various places. I think at one point she was in Idaho. Uh, at other times, her father was the mission president in England. And so she went over there and stayed for a while. But ultimately, by this point in the narrative, she is in Manassas, Colorado, which is in many ways in the middle of nowhere. And I apologize to anybody right now from Manassas, Colorado. I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, sure it's beautiful. <laughs> Today, it's probably just a wonderful little oasis of peace. But sure. back then, it was a it long was way from anything. In the, in the middle of nowhere. And you have to understand that, too, Emily Grant, who was Emily Wells, I mean, she grew up in Salt Lake City. Her family was very prominent. She was very popular among other people her age. And so being in a quiet town like Manassas was difficult for her. It was a challenge. It was a sacrifice, significant sacrifice for her. And she struggled with it. Tell us about Uncle Eli. So Uncle Eli was the name that Emily used to refer to Heber. So she would call him Uncle Eli and he called her, I think it was Mary or something like that. He had a, a code name for her too. But this is just something that many saints did. They would create code names for one another so that the letters they wrote or the documents they sent to one another could not be used as evidence against them. And so it was just a way to conceal identities. It was just one more layer to protection for the saints. And so Uncle Eli is just what she called Heber and that she would tell her daughters that the man who was visiting was their Uncle Eli. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I just really love the perspective that saints gives um, from the women's point of view. So Emily, 
um, here she is in Manasseh, and there are some church leaders that come visit, and they tell these widows that you might never be able to come back to Utah, and yeah. that would just be devastating. And in this letter to her husband, she said sarcastically, so this is what I love, she's like, they cheered us all up. They said the next move in Congress would be to confiscate the property of the leaders of the church, <laughs> and then we would be very glad we had come here and located. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just think she is doing her best to accept her situation, but we just get a sneak peek into just how she really feels. Yeah, and I hope one day that somebody publishes just transcripts of her letters to Heber because they are full of all sorts of insights on what it's like to be a polygamy widow. It's really, I mean, she, she has a very colorful voice, and unfortunately we were not able to tell half of what she put into these letters just because we didn't have the space to be able to do it, but she has such a wonderful, rich voice and provides a lot of insights into the challenges that she faced on the underground, but also the, the good humor that she sometimes used to cope with the challenges in front of her. Let's listen to one more quote here from Emily. I love this one because it shows kind of her tenacity for doing what she needs to do. She seems to have an ability to see things maybe in a way that others aren't. Before Wilford and his counselors left, Emily hosted them and other friends for breakfast. Afterward, she and a few other women accompanied the visitors to the train station. The train was late, giving Emily a chance to visit a little longer with the First Presidency. When the train finally arrived, she clasped hands with each man in turn. God bless you, they said to each other. Peace be with you. Emily longed to leave Manasseh as well. They went spinning off, she wrote Heber, and we returned to this desolate place. I think that statement really characterizes how she felt. I mean, in many ways she did feel she was abandoned in a, a desolate place. Uh, she wasn't. I mean, Heber J. Grant took very good care of her, provided all sorts of comforts for her while she was there. But they were ultimately just making the best of a bad situation. And this is something that all saints were dealing with, including the First Presidency. They did go spitting off, but they were themselves facing challenges of their own and difficulties of their own, which we, we feature this was just not a good time for the saints. And you can understand why so many of them felt so demoralized. So there's another group of people in this chapter that we want to talk about. So it's a settlement of Hawaiian saints. They go to a place called Yosepa. Can you tell us more about this place, why they went there, and what's the situation with these Hawaiian saints? As you know, missionary work in the Hawaiian islands just exploded. There are thousands of members there, and because of certain restrictions within the government, Hawaiian saints were not able to gather to Utah for, for many years. Ultimately, they established a gathering place on Oahu, which is Laie, which is where BYU-Hawaii is today. But after a while, the government restrictions were eased up and some Hawaiian saints chose to come to Utah so that they could be closer to the temple. And so many of them moved to Salt Lake City. But unfortunately, when they arrived here, they found a very difficult situation. So, I mean, one of the things they faced, for example, is they encountered a significant amount of racial prejudice and were finding it very difficult to just live their lives because people were not used to diversity and they were suspicious of someone who looked and acted differently. And so they found settling in Salt Lake City and other settlements to be very challenging for them. George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith had spent so much time among the Hawaiian people. They just loved them. That had to be 
difficult for them as well to see them not be just readily accepted into mainstream society in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. So a committee's put together. We learned about this in a previous chapter. There are Hawaiians on the committee. They choose this land. Well, it's a year later now. They're out in Yosepa, and they're having a party. They're yeah. having a celebration. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so after the first presidency leaves Manasseh, they continue to travel around visiting saints. One of the places they stop at is Yosepa, and it's the year anniversary of the settlement. And we oftentimes talk about Yosepa being in this really, really bleak, deserted area. Well, and, and currently it's a ghost town. Yeah, so and currently it is. it is a ghost town. So if you go out to <laughs> Yosepa today, you'll be like, wow, this place is really desolate. And in many ways it was. I mean, it was not an ideal location, and it was isolated. It was about 60 miles you know, from Salt Lake City, which is far, but not that far compared to other settlements. But it's also in a place called Skull Valley, which has this really ominous name. But the settlement itself was built on a former ranch, and it's a pretty well-watered area. And so they were able to raise crops successfully there. And, and the first year seemed to have been pretty successful when George Buchanan arrives there. And in his journal, he compares it to an oasis in the desert. And so they are celebrating the successes that they've had. They're celebrating this visit from the first presidency. They're celebrating the missionary work of George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith, the results of which are all around them. I mean, some of the people at the celebration had been converted through the efforts of these two men. And so it's just a, a celebration of, in many ways, uh, the Hawaiian Latter-day Saint identity in many ways. It's just a celebration of all that has happened over the last several decades. I just think it's really beautiful that George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith were able to be there. And there was even a man in his 90s that George had baptized over 40 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And I just think it have been such a special event for them. And they really respected both George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith. I mean, Yosepa was named after Joseph F. Smith. And then Cannon in his journal writes about how it, the people oftentimes treated him as if he were the father of the church in Hawaii, the same way we talk about like George Washington being the father of a country. They really had a lot of respect for these two men and the work that they did. I found it poignant also that George and Joseph F. were able to pray and to sing with the saints in Hawaiian, that they hadn't forgotten their mission languages. And we know, of course, that both of them never did forget Hawaiian, that they kept that language with them. And I just love that. I love that they were able to connect with them still in in their own language. We have a major event that happens at the end of this chapter, something that will shape the church for decades to come. And it's the issuing of a document where it's come to be known as the Manifesto. Scott, what is this document? What led up to it? You know, the Manifesto, we may know also as Official Declaration One. it's in the Doctrine and Covenants. It is the document that signaled, uh, what I like to say, uh, the beginning of the end of plural marriage among the saints. And what happened was the First Presidency is is visiting these various branches throughout the church, and they are seeing firsthand the toll plural marriage is taking on the people. And they, they, you know, they see somebody like Emily Grant or others who are struggling on the underground, and they realize that something needs to happen. And already Wilfred Woodruff has been taking steps to minimize the number of plural marriages taking place in the church and discouraging plural marriage, especially here in the United States. But when they get back to Salt Lake City, they find out about this report that came out of this group called the Utah Commission, which is basically the federal government's eyes and ears in Salt Lake City. And in this report, the Utah Commission 
essentially said that plural marriage is just as strong as it's ever been among the, the Latter-day Saints. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Church leaders are still advocating it, you know, um, quite aggressively. And, uh, you know, just suggesting to the government that nothing has changed and it's just going to get worse. And in fact, the government needs to do more to stop plural marriage. And Wilford Woodruff reads this report and his counselors read this report and President Woodruff specifically is just furious about it because he has done so much to try to curb this practice among the saints. And we and, learned that he even had told temple presidents, stop yeah, doing yeah. this mm-hmm. anywhere in the territory. Now we have Mexico and Canada that are a little uncertain sure. what's sure. happening there, but like he really seems to be putting forth a good faith effort to reduce or begin to shut down the process. And, and the sense is that he just doesn't feel like that's being recognized. And he, in fact, he feels like the commission is outright lying to the, the government about the situation in Utah. And so they come together and they realize that they need to issue a statement. This is something they had not done before, a statement indicating their intent to end the practice of plural marriage and encourage the saints to obey the law. And so, as we see in the narrative, Wilfred Woodruff and his personal secretary go off into another room. And during that time, he talks about how he prays and he receives inspiration from the Spirit to write what the Lord wants him to write. And then he emerges from that room and he finds George Cannon and I think it's Franklin D. Richards. And Richards actually records that when President Woodruff emerged from that room, his countenance had changed and that he just seemed brighter. And President Woodruff has the document read to George Q. Cannon and Cannon's like, I think the ideas here are right. I think we need to polish this up a little bit. And that's ultimately what they end up doing. They, they have several people review the manifesto, the document that President Woodruff put together, and they revise it. And that becomes essentially what we know today as the manifesto, as official declaration one. Let's listen to a clip from the book that talks a little bit more about this process in this event. This whole matter has been at President Woodruff's own instance, George Q. Cannon noted that day in his journal. He has stated that the Lord had made it plain to him that this was his duty, and he felt perfectly clear in his mind that it was the right thing. Wilford also reflected on the manifesto in his journal. I have arrived at a point in the history of my life as the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he wrote, where I am under the necessity of acting for the temporal salvation of the Church. The government had taken a determined stand against plural marriage, he knew. So Wilford had prayed and received inspiration from the Spirit, and the Lord had revealed His will for the saints. About this revelation, I just think about the revelation that we receive for our own lives, and it's always in connection with our specific circumstances to Mm -hmm. help guide and direct us and navigate our own lives and situations according to the gospel and the things that we know. And I just feel like the revelation of the manifesto, it was basically in response to Wilford Woodruff's pleading with God for direction and guidance, because there was a lot at stake here. I mean, people were getting arrested, families were being torn apart, and they were afraid that the government was going to confiscate the temples. And the effect of that would have been that the living and the dead would not be able to receive these saving ordinances of the gospel. Mm. That's one of the interesting things about the manifesto is oftentimes when you hear people talk about it, there sometimes you'll hear somebody say, you know, the manifesto was not a revelation, that this was just the church's politically savvy response to this pressure that they were receiving from the government. I would say that absolutely the manifesto was in response to political pressure because that's what revelation is. Revelation is response to pressures on our, in our own lives. You know, when we're receiving personal revelation, it's oftentimes in response to questions we have or pressures we're feeling. 
And if you look at the contemporary documents at the time, for example, uh, what we see in Cannon's journal and what we see in President Woodruff's journal and what you see in the journals of the apostles who worked closely with them, to a person, each of them recognized that this was inspiration, that this was revelation from God to the saints. Many of them, and I know you'll talk about this in another episode, many of them struggled to reconcile that with their own beliefs. They, they struggled to understand why the Lord would reveal such a thing. But to a man, not one of them questioned whether this was revelation. They all, they all knew that inspiration had taken place here. If, if readers could take anything away from this chapter is that the manifesto absolutely was revelation from God to his prophet for us. Thank you so much for sharing that, Scott. And I would just remind our listeners, if you're using the electronic edition of Saints, you tap on the footnotes that are around this part of the chapter, you'll be able to click through and read those journal entries for yourself from the actual documents in the Church History Library archives, as well as on the Church Historians Press website where we have George Q. Cannon's journal. As always, we invite your feedback. Email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. And you can find out more about the topics we've discussed today on our website, saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening. 